This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. I was taking a small break from the podcast. I took a week off to just sort of sit back and try to reflect on personal things, on public things, maybe just trying to trying to digest a lot that's happened in the last few weeks. And um, and you're the reason I broke my silence. And it's because I admire you. I admire your confidence. And uh, this is sort of an episode without preparation. I just, uh, you shared a tweet. It resonated with me. You were public about your pain. And uh, I think it takes some courage to do that. So you gave me the confidence to get off of my lazy ass and stop enjoying this little break of mine and get back to recording. So I was trying to time it. Well, no, 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 don't apologize. I was going to wait until after Labor Day in the US to just go back to the routine. But you know what? There's no need for that kind of time frame. I just, I want to start by maybe just that tweet and what it meant, maybe what it meant to you and also what it meant to me. And I'll just, I'll explain it from my side. Um, you're scarred. And you're acknowledging that it's a relatively minor scar and that this is just a physical wound and you will be able to walk, you'll be fine. Uh, you'll, you're not damaged in that sense, physically, but you are, in a sense too, marked for life with what happened on August 4th. Uh, and you're also expressing the, the mental cost of going through an experience like this and uh, there's an injury that's visible and not, and you're dealing with both, and uh, that's my life. You know, I, I kind of, I think I wake up every morning, and there's, there hasn't been a day in a long time that Lebanon is not on my mind. Not the good stuff, but the bad. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not able to always articulate it um, with enough sort of boldness, and I think you did, and I'm happy you're alive. Uh, I communicated with you just a few tweets, I think it was a few weeks ago, just making sure that you were okay. You shared photos of your apartment in Marim Chayet. We kind of joked before recording that your background is a thing of the past, and now we're, we have a sterile hotel room. <laughs> as a background, but that's okay. That's okay. Oh, I got a little poster over there. Got one poster. That's the best I can do. Was it, was it Mazin Kirbaj? Is that right? His, uh, yeah. 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 So we need to bring him back somehow. Maybe uh, get the hotel to decorate his work all over the place. But I'm just, I mean, it sounds silly, but I, I'm 
first, I'm happy you're alive, and that's how low the standards are in Lebanon. I'm, I'm happy you're alive. Um, I'm, I'm inspired that you're sharing a bit of your pain, and you're willing to talk about it on the podcast. And uh, yeah, the, the moment is a bit bizarre, but the scarring and the permanent damage, that, that resonates with me. I, let's start with the most bleak sort of stuff, and maybe we can kind of find some optimism later, but let's, let's dive into the, the pain. Um, and I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, that uh, before we recorded, before we started, you said that you're inclined to not go back to that apartment. And, and not return. Um, and if, if you don't mind me asking, what goes through your mind when you have to make that decision? And if you are deciding against going back, uh, why are you deciding against it? And what does that decision mean to you? Just in terms of the, where it happened, you're surviving that moment, and now sort of at a distance a bit, choosing to maybe not return to that, that type of abnormality. Sure. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, it's been, you know, I guess a month now, and it took me until two days ago to decide that I'm not moving back. I mean, I rent the place, mm. so, you know, I have the luxury of not having to move back. A lot of people don't. Yeah. Uh, something changes in you when something like this happens. You know, it's not, I don't, I mean, I don't remember what my apartment was like before the explosion anymore. Uh, the only memory I have, the most vivid one, is post-explosion. I go back there often because I still have my things there, um, and I want to clean up and things like that. <clears throat> I don't know if I moved back there, if things would just be fine, and it would go back to normal. And that's the reason why I've decided not to move back there. Because what if things don't go back to normal? Mm -hmm. Every time I go back there now, it doesn't feel normal. You know, the, there's still blood stains on the tile. I was telling you, my, my landlord wasn't able to clean them. It doesn't want to replace the tiles. Yeah. Um, a lot of things that were fixtures of the apartment are now destroyed. So it just it's not the same place anymore. Um, outside, the neighborhood is not the same place anymore. You know, you can't walk through that neighborhood without immediately just being transported for the two hours after the explosion. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the thoughts running through your mind, why didn't I do this? What if I had done that? Um, why didn't I help this person? What if I did that? It's, it's just an overload of thoughts and weight of a guilt that you feel everywhere you go. And even when you forget it for a moment, you feel guilty that you forgot which is actually why I tweeted yesterday, because I felt like now I'm starting to have moments where, you know, a few minutes go by where I forget what happened. That in and of itself is something very distressing because I don't want to forget and I don't want other people to forget either. Um, you know, people who are injured less maybe have the luxury of being able to, you know, get through it a little more easily. But when you have people close to you who lost somebody whose close family member is, you know, was in surgery for, you know, 10 hours, you feel like you owe them not to forget what happened to them because they're going to be dealing with it for a lot longer directly than you're dealing with it. 
Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. It's a hard decision whether you move back or not because you're, it's not like you move back and then you forget what happened. The street outside, the hospital near my house, all of my neighbors, that day is just going to be on repeat all the time and you're just are not ever going to be able to get over it. And, you know, it's too bad that others are not able to leave and I feel bad that I'm able to leave. Hmm. Um, you know, so it's just, this is, this is the after effects of something like this is that you survived, you feel bad. You were not injured that badly. You feel bad. You helped one guy, but not another guy. And the other guy died. You feel bad. There's just nothing. There's no way that you can spin it in your mind to make you feel good about anything that happened or anything that you did, you know, in, in that few hours after the explosion. Yeah. There's no kind of glimmer of hope that you can find or something that makes you think, wow, you know, this was a positive thing that happened. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I think it would be a challenge of the century to find a positive out of that kind of tragedy. And um, I'm curious, Mike, you, you mentioned that within two seconds of the second blast, the one that destroyed your apartment, that you made a, in a way, a, a decision that was almost instinctual, that you dived into a sort of a corner or almost like a shielded room, shielded enough that it was just going to be an injury rather than potential death. Can I, can I ask you what, what, I mean, do you know what made you jump? Did you, did you sense that as it's, I mean, this is what saved your life potentially. Why did you make that decision right then? And I'm, I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to sound cheesy here. It sounds like a miracle that you, that you, you saved yourself from, from the blast. So, I mean, this may be difficult terrain, but what, what made you jump at that moment, just a split second before, before the blast tore your apartment? Um, <clears throat> well, there was a, a roaring sound mm. um, that mm. people heard. This is what people thought was yes. a jet. Right. It was just the sound of the fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and a shaking. Like everybody else, I went up to my window because I thought it was right outside to see what it was. My apartment's very small. I mean, that room you see in the interviews I do, that's basically my whole apartment. Oh, and the wall. Oh, I see. That's, that is the, so it's, yeah, it's like I mean, a, a bedroom. Right, right, right. There's yeah. one bedroom, but yes. it's basically just that. It's yeah. very small. It's mm -hmm. like, uh, 60 square meters. I went up to my windows um, and then for some reason I just got a sinking feeling in my chest that something is just is not right here um i walked back behind my kitchen island and i just ducked over there and then one second goes by two seconds go by and i'm feeling very silly you know like what are you what are you doing ducking and it's just there's nothing happening yeah i mean right now go and duck behind something you're like okay what what am i doing yeah um, and then I started to get up and then that's when the explosion happened. Um, oh, you were, and I'm just, oh, I see. I see. Okay. So yeah, sorry. I think yeah. that's why my, I mean, I caught a glass to my knee and I think that's why, because I was coming to get up. And so my knee right. moved forward past 
the kitchen island. Um, and then you're just ducking there and you're just frozen, like midway. And you're just thinking, what the hell just happened? And you're just frozen there and you don't know how much time goes by. You know, I, from my vantage point, I, could, I couldn't see the windows, but I could see the other side of the, of the room. So I'm looking up and all I see is just tons of glass, like a tornado just flowing, you know, from yeah. one side of the room to the other. The aluminum of the, the window frame came apart and flew across the room. Um, my kitchen ceiling collapsed. And it's just a surreal moment because you just, you have no idea what just happened. And you're like, is, am I, is, is this real? What just happened? Um, anyway, and then. So you're almost, it's almost like suspended in time in a sense. You're able to sort of see it happening right in front of you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. When they say it happens in slow motion. It, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> and then you kind of wake up when a few seconds later, or maybe you start hearing it a few seconds later. Um, the jarring car alarms outside, you start hearing people screaming yeah. and it just becomes this one like combined sound of chaos that you're hearing from outside your window. Um, and then when I got up, basically, I mean, there was no wall there anymore because my whole, I had floor to ceiling windows. So there was just like a big hole in my apartment, oh, wow. you know, and then there's just a lot of confusion in those moments because I mean, I had, I had cuts on me, small cuts, but cuts on your face, your face tends to bleed a lot, even if it's small cuts. Yeah, yeah. So you just feel warmth dripping down your face. You see it on the floor all around you. You don't know whether you've been severely injured or not, because you know that, you know, you don't feel the injury right away. So the first thing you're thinking is, shit, I need to go and check that I'm not about to die right now <laughs> and it's it's the most it's the most terrifying feeling because you start thinking of anything else to do so you don't have to do that I called my mom I called uh, my friends who i know are in town we're in beirut and then kind of it's finally it's that, that moment of truth where you're like all right i have to do it now i have to stand in front of the mirror and examine my body to make sure there's not a piece of glass sticking out of my stomach right now that i don't see and then, you know, you do that and you're fine. Or, you know, I was fine. And then, you know, you've got to figure out, okay, what do, I, what do I do now? You know, <laughs> if you're not, it's not something you really ever plan is going to happen to you. Did, did you um, see you know, the, I mean, the, 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 what you shared on Twitter, did, was that visible to you right away? That that no, it wasn't. no, I didn't see it. Yeah. So you kind I of. I didn't see it because I had, yeah. well, I had cut the power off to my apartment. Mm. So the bathroom was dark. So I just kind of looked at the, you know, most, you know, areas that could actually kill you. you know, right, my, right. My torso, head, yes. my neck. Um, I mean, I've, I've, um, a long time ago, I used to be uh, uh, an EMT, uh, a volunteer EMT. So, you know, we've done a lot of these drills like this. Yeah. Um, so I just I try to remember kind of what's, what do I need to do now? Um, so you're t I know I didn't, I didn't do it right because I yeah. missed a huge gash in my leg, but you know, <laughs> That's, you don't plan for it did, to happen to you. Did you pass the class or no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I did well. Actually. You did well. Okay. But, you know, 
seeing it, uh, simulating it in a field is very different. Sure, of course. You know. And, mean, it, and it's your own body. I mean, it's if anything, you you expect to feel it maybe right away, but it doesn't ha doesn't work that way. It uh, yeah, no, these, not, yeah. I mean, and remember, in the moment, there's just so much happening around you that of course, yeah, you're just, you know, I mean, there was blood everywhere. Um, turns out it was from it was not from a serious wound, but you know, some places you get cut and you bleed a lot. Um, and when you see the damage in the apartment, you're like, there's no way I'm not seriously injured. You know, I mean, I had, there was no wall left. Um, I couldn't even, I mean, I cut my feet walking to the bathroom because it was just a carpet of glass everywhere. Uh, and I was barefoot. So you look at it and I saw a huge puddle of blood and you're like, okay, there's, I'm, I know I'm wounded somewhere. And do I really want to discover where, where I'm wounded? Um, but in a way you feel like uh, you just go on autopilot yeah. where yeah. you just, I just like, okay, just remember what the training was and just do it. And, you know, I mean, in a way I'm actually proud of myself that I was able to, you know, cut power to my apartment. I closed my gas tank. I stayed ducking for a little while longer because I thought it was an airstrike. Right. I did inspect myself. I didn't have any, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I did that. At least that part, I did it right. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when I was done doing that, or getting your phone is just going off constantly. Yeah. It's not enough to just, you know, on WhatsApp, I'm fine. Call you later. People want to talk to you. Um, and you're not able to talk in that moment, you know. And even though in a way you're obviously very happy that your family's calling you and they want to check up on you. But what I would tell people if, you know, something like this happens again to anybody they know, there's a, something that you're going through in a moment like that where you need to give that person what they need, at least in the immediate aftermath of what happened and not what you need. Yeah. Um, and sometimes people need to, you know, go out and help. They need to just not talk to anybody um, and just the blast of phone calls, which, you know, in retrospect is, is nice. You know, you want you feel very alone when something like this happens. Um, I mean, I didn't realize I was sharing this with the entire city uh, at, <laughs> at the time. But in that moment, you're like, it's just I need to figure out what I need to do right now. because yeah. It's still not safe where I am, you know. I'm going to offer my own sort of moment that uh, I mean I, I don't I don't share this with anyone, um, but I'll share it with you. You're being very kind and, and telling me something that uh, you're 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 using specific words also that that I mean if I had to look back and reflect on my own kind of personal stuff, I think I would use the exact same words. Um, I don't think I can ever live in the same apartment when I heard the explosion that killed my father uh, and looking at the phone and realizing what happened and the autopilot of everything that happened in the aftermath and then 
not caring about your own well-being, just making sure people you care about are okay. And uh, sort of coming to terms that there's something wrong inside feels horrible. And then it's sort of, uh, it's not something you can just sort of erase. And the, the sense of paralysis that you described, although yours is far more life-threatening to you, and you barely survived. I mean, you made a decision that saved your life. Um, I, I, I mean, that's something I, I cannot relate to. And I mean, all I can say is that I'm glad you made that quick decision. But the paralysis, watching sort of things freeze in front of you, it's exactly how I felt. It's exactly how I felt. And uh, yeah. Did you hear I, it from the apartment? Yeah, I heard it. And I didn't know that it was, uh, I, you know, you said you thought it was an Israeli strike. Uh, I thought it was a, I, th I mean, I, I thought it was maybe a construction site that collapsed. I didn't put, I didn't go there. I didn't go to, uh, to what happened. And I know, I don't want to, I mean, what you went through is so much more difficult and painful, at least when it comes to your own well-being. So I'm not, I'm not I don't want to make it sound like there's a similar uh, story here at all. Other, other than trauma. No, it's very similar. There's trauma. It's very similar. Yeah, this is, this is trauma. And I think the fact that there's hundreds of thousands of people that witnessed what you witnessed and went through it, I mean, this is an unprecedented form of collective trauma. It's just, uh, it's, it's, and when I, when I started by, uh, by kind of saying that I took the last few weeks off to try to process a few things, I think, um, call it selfish, but I think I'm feeling these things again. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not in Beirut. All my attention is on Beirut, but I'm not there. The uh, the blasts shook me to my core, and it shook me in a way that was, I mean, it again it's on a personal side, it reminded me of the aftermath of my father's assassination, even though it's not the same. But it took me back. The uh, very very unimpressive finale of the tribunal the verdict it uh, it reminded me of things again that i thought i had maybe managed to compartmentalize but no it's every day it's every day even on good days and bad days it's it's every day and then seeing so many people i know whether in real life or in your case virtually we we don't know each other in person sharing that moment online i mean i, I felt like i felt connected suddenly to this connect collective pain. The world really is divided between two sets of people to me now. You know, people who know what trauma like this feels like. Yeah. People like you and, and others who have experienced something like that. People who were there on the ground and saw what everybody else saw. And people who just watched it on TV. <laughs> um, and that's not to say that, like, they have their empathies any less or, but no matter how empathetic they are, no matter how much they care, if you weren't there, you don't know what it was like. You don't know what it was like yeah. to see bodies laying on the ground to such an extent that you just walk over them because you just, it doesn't, you know, you just, your mind just shuts that off. Yeah. You know, you see one body on the ground and you panic you see 10 and you're just like stepping over them, moving them out of the way yeah. from the roads that the ambulance can pass. 
you don't know what it really feels like to see moms screaming for help and nobody answering them. People laying on the ground with fingers chopped off, arms chopped off, screaming for help, drenched in blood, and there's absolutely nobody there to help. You know, you, the thing you hear the most after, after this, the last month, is alhamdulillah, glad you're okay. Which is, you know, it's what you have to say. You know, it's, it's not what else you're going to tell somebody. That's true. Actually, that you're right. There's yeah, nothing else you can say. <laughs> you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> but what that does in a very perverse way is it just takes you back to being out there. And, you know, somebody like me who, you know, has like basic wound management and bandaging skills, you know, I, have, I keep a trauma kit at home from those days. And <laughs> it was packed with gear. I went down to the hospital. There's a hospital by my house over there, which was totally demolished, but it became like a makeshift uh, trauma center. Yeah. And, but they had no, they had no equipment. They were basically just the nurses were using what I had in my kit. Which which hospital um, is this? Is it? Is it? What the? Oh, okay. So you know, not, yeah, yeah. So I yeah, but I'm so it's un, it was it's un, not a trauma hospital. Right. Yeah, yeah. They don't yeah. do this kind of thing. They like yeah. cancer treatment and things yeah, like that. Right. 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 And. You have to start deciding which person do I want to help? Do I bandage this person up or do I bandage that person up? This person is unconscious. Do I go and see what's wrong with them or do I just say, well, you know, too late for them. I got to go. I got to go. And at the time, it's, it's autopilot. You're not really phased by anything you're seeing in that moment. It's only when you're looking back at it you start questioning every single decision you made. Did I help the right person? Yeah. Did I waste too much time on this person while somebody else was right next to him and he needed help more? Did I did I let this person die so I could bandage up somebody who, who was, was going to be okay anyway? There's not a decision you make that you feel comfortable having made. Um, and so when you people tell you it just takes you back there and you're just like, fuck. You know? Yeah. And I didn't I remember my well enough to know that this person was gonna be okay. Yeah. And it's the other person that needed help more than, than him. You're aware you're aware that this this is absolutely beyond your control. That you did as much as yeah, exactly. It doesn't it doesn't right, hundred percent. That even if you are able to come to terms with it, that you did what you could at that moment, it still it, it creeps up and it uh, it's haunting. Yeah. Yeah, because people could tell you. Obviously, I didn't cause the explosion. You know, none of us did. But you know, between you and yourself, you you start thinking, what if I had done this thing different? Mm -hmm. What if I had done that other thing different? Um, maybe at least for somebody, the outcome could have been different. Yeah. But no matter what you did, you could have done everything perfectly. It's it's just a feeling that doesn't escape you because, you know, you, because you should have been ready. Because, you know, I mean, I've done so much training for this. I don't feel like I did everything the way I should have done it. Um, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like, okay, well, I mean... 
what did you do? I mean, it's not, what's your role in this? But, you know, it just doesn't matter how you rationalize it in your mind. Yeah. The fact is, people died around you. And there was a possibility, maybe, that you could have done something. And you didn't. And you have to think about that all the time. Um, and it's just, that's just how it is now. Mike, can I ask you about your division? And I divide the world accordingly as well. Nobody has ever said it the way you've said it to me. And that's exactly how I divide the world, by the way. This doesn't include just uh, people that uh, are strangers. This includes, I think, to a certain degree, friends and perhaps lovers. Yeah. It kind of, it enters all, I mean, thankfully, thankfully, there's enough people to get you by. Otherwise, it would be a very small audience. <laughs> On Lebanon especially. Right, exactly, exactly. But fortunately, but have you had to deal with that already? And I mean this in, the, in a sort of broad way. Do you get, I mean, let's use the example of media. Do you, do you get media requests from people that are perhaps <laughs> un unaware of how painful this is? And I, I mean, I'm not maybe yeah. deliberately excluding Lebanese media here, even though they could be at times sort of... Uh, incorrect in their uh, emotional sort of uh, judgment. And I, I've experienced this myself, but I mean, is it, is it there or is it also among colleagues or maybe people that you know uh, that you're it's, not able to connect with? I mean, it's really everywhere you look. Um, yeah. In terms of media, I got a <laughs> media request from a Canadian TV station, the night of the blast basically asking me, can you come on to talk about the, the explosion? Oh, the, same, that, the same night. The same night, yeah. And it's funny, when I got that message, so <laughs> I discovered my, my, the wound in my leg yeah. uh, much later that night. Yeah. I was too tired to go to a hospital. Uh, the hospitals were just, you know, they were dealing with so much more. So I was like, I'm going to wait until tomorrow. But my friend who's a doctor told me that you have to get it stitched right away. Um, because once it starts healing, it's might not be possible to stitch it up anymore. Right. And you just yeah. have to wait months for it to heal on its own and heal poorly and you have to clean it every day. And it was a pain. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, well, what you can do is just stuff it, pack it with gauze so that it doesn't start healing. Oh. And oh, if you right. ask me to do that now, no way. I mean, but you're still in the in that autopilot. Yeah, mode. right. I was in the bathroom shoving gauze inside my wound. And my phone beeps. And I look at it <laughs> and the reporter asked me to do an interview. And I'm just like, this <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> so. It's almost, it's almost like a movie scene. I mean, it doesn't, it can't, like nobody. I mean, I know. No, what, just, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, they don't. Complete yeah. detachment. This <laughs> sure. is the split. Between yes, you were yes. there or you weren't there. Yeah. In Lebanon, I mean, I went back home. And I remember, this is just last week, a family member, or I won't say who in case they watch this, but they'll know who they are, <laughs> comes up to me and starts taking photographs of my injury while I'm just sitting there in the living room. And this, like, rage <laughs> built up in me for some reason. You know, now I look back, I'm like, yeah, whatever. But I like I choked up on rage. Like, what? What are you doing? This is not like some. I'm not like wearing new clothes that you want to you know, take a photo <laughs> of. 
right? <laughs> you become very irritated at everybody, you know, and you have to control that because it's not their fault that they don't know. But you become irritated at every single person because you're like, you have no idea. You have no idea. Yeah. My mom asked me the other day, do you have any fun plans this weekend? <laughs> like, fun plans? Everything just starts starts pissing you off, to be honest. Um, yeah. It's, it's one of, I don't know if you felt something similar, but, you know, I mean, you just I, end up being like a very antisocial person. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's another word you you used earlier. It's also, exact. I mean, I, I, I remember being uh, surrounded by media the day, the hours after, and cameras and flashing, and there were microphones everywhere, and also trying to sort of just find my way out. But it's it's the autopilot, and also sort of I okay maybe she, she will she might watch this, so it's fine. Paula Yaubian. Okay. Pa- sure watch it. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Pa- Paula I don't know. If she's she might see this. Um, <laughs> with all respect to her media career, and I, I told her this the evening of the assassination. Uh, Future TV back then, uh, they showed up. They wanted to do an interview with myself and my mom. This is the same day. So this is, I mean, I was not in my right mind whatsoever, and. Uh, I had gone from hospital to hospital because I wanted to see what happened. So I, I made the decision to go see what was left of my father. And I also made the decision to pay my condolences to his driver who was killed in the blast. I was unable to meet the victims of the blast. There were others that were either killed or injured. And I wasn't able to do that. I, I ran into a few later, but this is later, maybe a day or two later. Um, but it's it's a bit hazy. But uh, going back to the media stuff, she shows up, and you know, I mean, it's Paula Yaubian. So you, I mean, I she does this for a living, or she did this for a living. So I I know that maybe I should expect very little sort of uh, comfort from that moment. This is a media personality. But I told her so. I told her before she started the interview. Uh, I told her that uh, what you're after right now means nothing to me. And it was born. It, it came out of a bad place. I, I didn't. Yeah. I don't think she had. She needed to hear that. Um, but she agreed. She agreed. And she said, "This is just the. This is how media functions. I mean, it's nothing. It's not. It's not personal." And. Uh, I showed up on that interview. My mom would have been alone, actually, sitting on the sofa talking to her. I, I kind of, at the at the last second, I walked into the camera scene and I sat down, and I sort of, uh, I shared what I could, but it was very, it was a very painful exchange, because I couldn't really put my mind around what was happening. I couldn't understand really, and this is going to be maybe if I have never really shared these things before, um, yeah. because it's future TV. And because of the moment, suddenly Najib Miati walks into our apartment <laughs> and sits down. And I did not want to talk to him. I didn't want him to sort of offer some mediocre uh, ideas or even maybe perhaps falsehoods. The usual of we will get those guys and we'll, we'll catch them and blah, blah, blah. I wasn't really having it. That's some political points. Yeah, exactly. And I think he had just flown in 
maybe to the country or something. He had just sort of arrived. But uh, it's for media, it's not for us. So there's a great scene, and I'm sure it's somewhere on YouTube, of me just sort of looking at the floor and Mejibati trying to give his, uh, his sort of prophet-like predictions. And it's the usual yeah. blah, blah. I mean, it's sort of uh, saying, yes, we'll catch these guys, we'll have an investigation. And you know, by the way, you know at that moment that this is all BS. You know it. From I mean, all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody else. Sure, sure. But like, they tell uh, you. yeah, and it's hours after the incident. So I'm trying... You're, you're like built up rage against a photo of your wound. It's like exposing you unnecessarily. You're not, you're not trying to expose. You're, it's a vulnerable thing. It's a very vulnerable position to be in. And I think you sort of automatically you want to preserve yourself. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, that rage, I think it lingers on and on and on and on and on. And it doesn't really, yeah. I mean, you just sort of, I mean, <clears throat> you put it on the shelf at some point, but it's still on the shelf. And it, yeah. Yeah, it makes an appearance. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had said that this trauma is greater because it's more, I mean, because it happened to me. But, you know, I don't believe that, you know, you lost somebody you love. Yeah, I keep them above every episode as well, and I sort of light a candle beneath them every day. And we had a very nice moment last time. I'm going to mention it. You didn't know, and I liked that. I don't, yeah, we had a conversation. Yeah, I don't really know people. Yeah, no, we had a conversation. Yeah, I just don't really know people. Yeah, yeah, but it was nice because it was a pure conversation without any sort of, uh, there was no background. It's just two people wanting to talk about finance. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but yeah, no, you, I mean, sorry, I interrupted you. I, I'll let you keep going. I don't know how you did that interview. I mean, <clears throat> and, the day, and the day of, yeah. you know. I mean, it was hard reading because, you know, a lot of people wrote kind of personal essays in the days after the explosion about what happened. Um, I don't know how they wrote those so fast, you know, <laughs> how they were able to focus to write something. But they were very um, comforting, you know, because sometimes it's hard to process the feelings that you need to be feeling on your own and reading them on paper and well-written essay helps you kind of understand how you're feeling and how you need to be feeling through somebody else. But it was hard for me to even just get through the essays in one shot. And this was like in the one, two, three days after. So I can't imagine sitting and doing an interview. And just at the time you feel like this is stupid. Everything is stupid. You know? That's what you said earlier. It's autopilot. You just, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't even remember it. Honestly, I don't remember. I don't, I remember, I know it now by watching it. I don't really remember much about it. I know it happened. And at the same time, I think it, it's just, uh, you, your, your, your brain sort of, sort of hijacks the body maybe and just lets you pull through until you collapse days later. Um, can I, yeah. Can I ask you a question? Of course, of course. <clears throat> How did you deal with feeling that everybody around you was starting to forget and was going to forget and you were going to be the only one left and who remembered what happened? 
That's a very good question. And um, no one has ever asked me that question. Um, Kim Gattes, she used to work for BBC. In early 2014, she was doing a radio, BBC Radio 4, I believe, or it was a, she was, I, she wanted to talk to me. And uh, I kind of alluded to what you just asked. Um, I said, The adjustment to abnormality is, in my opinion, Lebanon's curse. And I can't get upset at people dancing at white above Nahar the evening that my father was killed two blocks down at Starko. I can't. It's not, my, it's not fair for me to blame them on anything. They did nothing wrong. They're enjoying their night out. Yet, uh, the fact that they're able to enjoy their night out uh, while this kind of absurdity is happening, and it's not just my father who was killed in that explosion, others were killed too. So it's assassination almost robs, I think, the other victims from the story. There are, there are people that die in every single attack, and they have nothing to do with what's going on. Um, I think it's a very lonely feeling that you... Uh, you start seeing things in 2020 vision, and there's no pun intended with the year right now, but it's too clear, and you start uh, realizing that, um, that that's just the way it works. People adjust, and they, they, they accept a certain level of, uh, of uh, paralysis, of pain, and... Um, here. Only here. Um, because... That's my, I mean, I, fortunately, maybe, I don't know what it's like to be in other countries dealing with maybe collective pain, but in the Lebanese context, I think it's quite stunning. Yeah. I think it's quite stunning that you can have an assassination and people don't, it's not that they don't care. They're like, oh, another assassination. And Starco within a few days is repairing their windows. And that's that. It's over. That person was killed, no justice, no, it's almost like the crime didn't happen. It's yeah. almost like nothing happened. And I think that I, I internalize that as the, that is what, that is what Lebanon's curse really is, is that it's been so long, so many years, so much time of that routine that people sort of, uh, they move on too fast. And it, it's a yeah, it's a lonely feeling because you only get to talk to people who have experienced a certain level of loss or pain in that sense, and they don't really want to talk about it all the time. I mean, it's it's not exactly it's not a it's not an uplifting conversation. So yeah, it's lonely. It's very lonely. Yeah, I don't, I don't I know mean, if that really, yeah, I don't know if that really no, answered the question, but it's uh, I used the does. phrase. I mean, it answered it. I, I used positively. The, I used the phrase with her dancing into the abyss and she used that actually as the story, the title for the story. That's how I felt that these people are dancing fine, good for them, but they're in free fall. And, uh, that's the way I kind of, uh, I, I understood it back then. Yeah. You know, there are rituals that happen in other countries and they have a purpose. 
<laughs> this idea of like a collective national mourning. Yeah. Um, yeah. Leaders going down and showing, you know, some type of solidarity with people and giving uplifting speeches and a real effort to bring justice to people who experience that. These things are so important for for people to be able to move on in some way yeah. from what they experienced. And we are missing every single limb of that here. Absolutely. Where you know you're going to get no justice. You know, people are going to be forgotten. Everybody who died is going to be forgotten. But their families are not going to forget. They're going to remember every day. Yeah. And one day I'm going to forget. You know? It's... It's just what's going to happen. But I don't think you're going to forget. Uh, I, 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 mm, I might disagree with you forgetting what happened. And I, I, I'll only, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Uh, I think it's, even if this is a missed opportunity, it may well be a missed opportunity, but hundreds of thousands of people had some form of, had something that is similar to a degree of what you experienced, and that you're not alone. And you, I mean, people not just in Madam Khair, but Jamezi, Ashrafi, I mean, there are just too many people that had either an injury, or they lost a loved one, or they lost their homes, and they all saw the same things that you're describing right now. A, uh, a president who cannot say one thing that heals, not one thing, not one thing. You know what? I'll say it a little differently. I am disappointed that uh, this kind of collective pain did not transition into a collective justice. Because I thought maybe, maybe with enough people hurting, you could see the things that you'd want to see. And that includes uh, maybe a certain, maybe a leader, maybe a, whether it's the president or, or anyone, anyone uh, afraid of public's reaction and stepping down out of fear or maybe being whisked aside by their aides and saying they're coming for you go I, I I am disappointed that I expected maybe some of that to happen and it didn't happen and um, but but the people that it's are very hurting, distressing it's very distressing but the people that are hurting I don't think this is something maybe I'm wrong but I don't think you can easily forget uh, this kind of this magnitude of, of trauma. I, I, uh... You know, it's um, in a way you want to because one side of you thinks I don't want to live feeling this way the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I don't want to live being irritated at everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> feeling like everything around me is stupid and pointless. Um, feeling guilty about what I did and didn't do. Yeah. And on the other hand, I'm terrified about forgetting. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to forget what happened. And so I don't know where I don't know where I want to be. And I guess you just kind of settle into whatever your body, you know, whatever, wherever your mind settles into, you don't may not have too much control over it. Um, but forgetting would be, you know, 
I'll only say something here. And I don't want to I don't want to speak on your behalf. I'm just going to get what I sense from your work and your commitment. I think uh, purpose and this level of passion, um, I think will guide those emotions forward. And uh, I have a feeling that uh, even if you forget just enough to get by, that you need to do at some point, and you will, and everyone sort of finds a way to cope, uh, the mission, I think, uh, persists, and it just grows stronger. And uh, I don't think you will forget enough to sort of let go of what uh, brought you here. I, I doubt it. I'd be, I would be surprised. You find a way to channel all, all the rage within you, into something positive. In my case, it's very, very selfish. It's keeping a man that I admire deeply, keeping his words, keeping his voice alive. And in that pursuit, more selfishly, thinking what I think is best for a stable, secure, sovereign Lebanon. I think you'll find also within you that uh, this tragedy that hits you very hard, uh, it'll give you strength down the road. And I say this from my own experience. I think uh, it doesn't happen overnight. It, it takes time. But then you get there, and you feel like you're, in a way, a superhero, in a way. You're, you're, uh, you're unstoppable. So not to sound too cheesy here, Hollywood-esque, but uh, I, don't think, uh, I don't think your passion or your pursuits will be fading anytime soon. I think they'll be growing. And, uh, yeah, that's somebody who admires, somebody, this is from somebody who doesn't know you, somebody who only knows you on TV, social media, somebody who's a bit inspired by what you do, so I, I'll, I'll leave it there. I think, uh, I think your, your contribution is far from over. I don't know. I don't know, uh, I don't know, I don't know, I think the near future is horrible, and I wanna, so maybe we can wrap it up by both of us. We're, I think, roughly the same age. You're in your late 30s? Or you're no, mid-30s. Mid-30s, okay. 34. 34? I'm a little older, but we're the same. Yeah, we're, we're the same we're, age. Yeah. We're born in the Let's 80s. The <laughs> we're, we're within arm's reach of Macron. <laughs> we're, yeah. Yeah, he's we're, a little younger than us, maybe. Well, maybe, maybe. Or maybe <laughs> a little older. He looks younger. He, he, he is younger, I think, at heart, but he is a bit older. I think he's yeah. 42. Well, he uses good, good cream. Yeah, exactly. He uses great cream. Exactly. Exactly. Or no, the cure is just fall in love with somebody a little too old for you and maybe you'll stay young forever. <laughs> the photo with Feirouz yeah. was actually quite, was quite, uh, I mean, it was a very, in my opinion, it was a very sweet photo. It was nice to see Feirouz. Yeah. I mean, she, yeah, was. she sort of faded a bit. I haven't seen her in a while, yeah. yeah. It was also equally interesting to sort of enter her living room and see how she lives. But let, let's talk about this. We're, we're, uh, we're young. We don't have perspective when it comes to the worst years of tragedy. We were too young to really appreciate how bad it got during the Civil War. I have some memory of it. I remember a car bombing. I remember a dead body on the street in Tripoli. I remember glass. I remember, I remember pain. But childhood, limited. And I think most Lebanese at some point in their lives have gone through some form of that by default. But we're too young also to have seen the better years. We don't know what it was like prior to the Civil War. We only have stories. We have no clue what it would have been like to grow up in Beirut in the 1920s with the French Mandate and Greater Lebanon. But from our side, 
people that have post-war memories, people that have experienced the post-war years. Um, I am unable at this point right now to see any direct improvement or any short-term improvement, but I do think that we're entering a massive transition along the lines of 1920. And I was thinking today, just before, before uh, asking if, you, if you'd want to talk, of what it would have been like to come out of World War I in Beirut, from starvation, from famine, from war, from brutal sort of uh, ending of the Ottoman Empire and hangings in Martyrs Square, and suddenly you find yourself under occupation and the French militarily alive, uh, arrive. They're not sort of ushered in by some peace uh, conference. This is a war. And in a way, in a sense, they bombed their way into <laughs> to mandate uh, control. I think this would have been a terrifying moment to be in Lebanon. And you have the Spanish flu. You have so many people that died in the years before. And I think it would have been equally dismal back then to be entering greater Lebanon. Whatever that meant to anyone in Beirut back then. It's like this odd sort of uh, flag with a cedar tree in the middle, the French flag, a cedar tree, and suddenly you have to, you know, Guru becomes a household name, and, and I mean, things that were very alien. But things changed dramatically and permanently. And I, I get the feeling that this is happening now, that we're going through a very seismic shift. But it's just that history takes time, and we're living in, a, in an era where we have instant access to information, and uh, we're able to collectively share things all the time. And um, maybe we expect more to happen sooner rather than later. But I, I do think that we're entering a, a, another chapter. Or, or maybe we're closing a certain book and opening something new, but there's something happening. And I think it's just it's too early to see the shift. Chapter. I, I think so, yeah. And I, I say this knowing that you shouldn't guess, you, shouldn't, you should never project into the future. But it just, it has the feeling of a lot of things have changed recently, and they're, they're still changing, and, um, and we're heading in a new direction. But does any of that resonate with you? That sort of, that, that there is change, regardless if the change is good or bad in the near future. It may, it may get worse. It may, it may well collapse, but there is something in the air, and it's, in a way, it's unstoppable. There's no going back to 2016, 15, or even the 2000. You're never going to return to the 1990s. There's something else happening now. And it's, it is it yeah. is a permanent change. No, no doubt. I mean, it's hard not to see that um, and just seeing kind of all the things happening around you. Mm. The question then is, kind of what direction are you going? Are you going to something much worse than you have now? Or... Yeah. Is there an opportunity now to build something that will be better than what we've had the last few decades for, you know, maybe be too late for us? Because like you said, history takes time. Nation building takes time. Um, you know, as far as I, you know, my reading, this country can go in two totally opposite directions. And it just depends on what decisions are made. Um, but the world around us, I mean, excluding maybe the last few years, just looking kind of globally, 
the world around us is getting better. We're moving in a, you know, yeah. people are coming out of poverty. There is more access to information. The idea of, you know, individual freedom and democracy and blah, blah, blah. These things are becoming, you know, it's a current. Yeah. If you look 50 years till now, there's clearly a trend globally. I think we could be picked up in that wave because mm -hmm. we're not going to be the only country that's left behind. Um, and as people here see that your life doesn't have to be this way, there is there are is an alternative way of living that yeah. everybody else is striving for, and you don't have to stay living this way. And I think that's what gives me hope that there is, you know, if you look at it on a macro level, there is that possibility of getting there. But I, I just don't see it being an easy journey. Um, and, you know, I need that to be the case because selfishly also, I don't want to feel like I wasted, I spent years of my life yeah. stressing, you know, staying up late, just being as active as I'm able to be. And then find five or ten years down the line that absolutely nothing happened, except that I wasted five or ten years of my life on this. I, I need it to change, and I think a lot of us need it to change. Um, so, yeah, and I think it can, but you know, it's just it's such a confusing time right now that you just, just don't know. You don't know where anything's going. It's a confusing time. Uh, it's also symbolic time. I mean, the French army is celebrating our centennial for us. They're the ones flying the jets and sort of decorating the sky with the Lebanese flag and I think terrifying some people as well into assuming these are war war times. No, yeah. Time. Maybe yeah timing is a bit off, but but it's the French army doing it, not us. Uh, maybe something symbolic as well. Lady Cochrane Surso dies on the eve of the centennial. I mean this woman's ninety eight, turning ninety nine. I mean she is modern history. She is the modern Lebanon story, and she passes away indirectly from the explosions that took place. But, I mean, she's the sort of, you associate architecture and heritage and what's left of the charm of Beirut with that kind of story. And the Sursa Palace itself is sort of destroyed in the process. The architecture that we celebrated, what was left of it, Jamezi Omar Khair where you were living, uh, I mean, a lot of that is, can't, you can't fix it. I mean, a lot of it is just permanently damaged. And a lot of that damage we did to Beirut too. It's not just the blasts. We lost a lot of our heritage. Um, maybe the comfort zone that we got used to, that we could wither certain storms and Lebanon would come out okay, I think that's gone as well. And it'll take years and years and years before anyone really trusts the banking sector once again. And may, maybe even free expression, we're losing a bit of that on, on the way. Things that we really were proud of, we're unable to properly celebrate right now. So I think good stuff is ending, and, and maybe, maybe bad stuff is ending too. Maybe we're not going to adjust or readjust to permanent abnormality. Maybe certain uh, individuals, their days are numbered. Maybe certain groups that we were too afraid to challenge directly, we're able to challenge directly today. And we know that there's a cost to everything. And there's a lot of decent people still trying. And uh, I think that's where the hope is. 
and I agree with you. I agree that uh, you need to have that level of uh, cautious optimism so that you don't feel like you wasted a decade of your life. But, uh, but then you get sort of individuals like you and other people that we know trying against the odds and they're still trying and they're injured on the way and they're still trying. And uh, who knows? Who knows? I think uh, 2020 is a difficult year for a lot of people. It's a very difficult year for Lebanon. And I hope it's replaced with something a little easier on us. And, and I hope uh, I hope if we're entering something new long term, it's for the better and not for the worse. Yeah, we're not the first generation to go through a transformation like this and yeah. feel like you have a role to play in it. Um, and they did it, and you have to keep keep doing it too, um, at least to know that you did, that you tried, and wherever things go, you did, you know, you played your part in it, and um, yeah. you did what you could. And you're very kind to share a bit of your personal story, and uh, I know people are saying it all the time, so alhamdulillah, sit in. And uh, <laughs> Mike, we'll, we'll, ca you. we'll catch up when uh, maybe... Uh, if there's, I, I don't know, if the, it's funny when the financial story is put on the side for Macron and Fairuz. And, uh, I, but I think that story is, is still front and center and it'll, it'll hit hard very soon. So we'll catch up and we'll talk more about, uh, about those things. But really, I thank you for giving me your time to see. It means a lot. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, Ronnie. Catch you later. Thanks for listening, and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>